0: The Hymnal, as we look at questions 82 through 85 this evening, it's on page 875 of the Trinity Hymnal, and let us confess our faith with one another. I will ask the question and together let us answer. Page 875, beginning with question 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves And by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And the final question, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God, due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means, whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Amen. If you will please stand for the reading of God's word this evening. We're going to look at a few passages. Uh, first one beginning in Matthew chapter 11, verse 22 and 23. Matthew 11, verses 22 through 23. And then we will look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And then Hebrews 11, verse 6. Let's begin with Matthew 11, Beginning in verse 22. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And now uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. And now Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 6. And without faith it is impossible... To please Him. For whoever would draw near to God. Must believe that He exists. And that He rewards those. Who seek Him. Thus far God's holy word. You may be seated. And let us go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father we. Again, thank you for your word to us, and we pray that at this time you will bless the reading and also the preaching of your word, especially as we look at the subject matter of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Lord, as we have just finished the the Ten Commandments and we know your holy and righteous standard, uh, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to live it, uh, also that we will see that we do not always live it, and that it points us therefore. To our need for Christ. We pray that uh, you might make us more and more like him. That we might be righteous as he is righteous. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well when we hosted presbytery a year ago last September. One of the ruling elders in our presbytery. I remember I picked him up from the airport and it was late at night. And he was wanting to ask me deep theological questions, and my brain was not uh, quite in the mode for uh, deep theological questions at the time. But uh, he asked me a simple question, and sometimes you know how those simple questions can be difficult at times. We ought to know them, and we ought to be able to explain them, but for some reason, uh, they're maybe a little more difficult than we had thought. Well, I pick him up from the airport and he asks me as we're as I'm driving him to his hotel, what is the best way to define reformed theology? And I begin kind of bumbling along, really, it's pretty sad for your pastor to admit, I suppose. But at that time, I I suppose the best way to answer this question was to speak of the sovereignty of God. Reformed theology teaches Calvinism and the full sovereignty of God over salvation. And this elder—I don't think he would mind if I, I told you his name—is John Terpstra. He's an elder in at the Austin, uh, uh, one of the Austin churches. Uh, he said, "Well, you're partially correct. God's sovereignty is important, and that's a part of." the way we ought to define it. But he said the definition of Reformed theology is the sovereign administration of the covenant of grace. And tonight as we look at questions 82 through 85, we will discuss just that, the sovereign administration of the covenant of grace. It takes us through this covenant of grace. And so we have just concluded as I mentioned in my prayer, the catechism questions on the Ten Commandments. And we looked at God's righteous standard that we are commanded to live by. And so naturally, it's it's natural for the, the catechism to then ask the question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer takes us all the way back to the fall. We learn that no mere man, and remember that phrase, no mere man, since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. You see, prior to the fall, man was able to keep the commandments of God. God had entered into a covenant of works with Adam and required of him perfect and personal obedience With respect to his commands. Adam had the ability to do this. To be obedient to God. He was created in an estate of innocency. In which he was able to sin. And able not to sin. But we know that Adam chose sin. And he fell from the estate of innocency and into an estate of sin and misery in which man was not able not to sin. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, we're going to to cover tonight the four different estates of man. We just looked at the first two, the estate of innocency in which man was able to sin and able to sin. Not to sin. And we've looked at the estate of sin and misery. In which man is not able not to sin. So since the fall, no mere man has been able to keep God's commands perfectly. Man, since the fall, is not able not to sin. I want you to think about that. Get the double negatives down there. Not able not to sin. In fact, the catechism answer goes on to say that man daily breaks God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. And this means that like Adam, all men are covenant breakers. We have offended a holy God. And because God is holy, he hates sin. And because God is just, he must punish sin. And therefore, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, just like we learned from the catechism question and answer that we read earlier. Just because God is love does not mean that He will ignore sin. Now, oftentimes I have heard people, perhaps you have as well, who say that uh, when they stand before God, they hope that He will let them in the pearly gates because A, He is a God of love, and B, because they've been a pretty good person. Sure, they admit that they're not perfect, but their sins aren't really that bad. Maybe they've told a lie or two, but they've never really hurt anyone. Well, the problem with people like this is that they do not really understand the holiness of God. Nor do they understand the gospel of grace. See, God is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. One sin, just one little sin deserves the wrath of God. Now, what these people do have right is that not all sins are equally heinous in the sight of God. You may have heard some Christians tell you that all sin is the same in God's eyes. Well, that's simply not true. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, but not all sins are equally heinous. Jesus teaches us this when he pronounces woes upon unrepentant cities. In that text that we read earlier, I probably should have backed up and and began a few verses earlier. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is pronouncing woes upon unrepentant cities. And he says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. They had received more revelation than Tyre and Sidon. Therefore, they were going to be held more responsible than Tyre and Sidon. You see, all four of these cities would be judged for their lack of belief, regardless of how much revelation they had received. But Chorazin and Bethsaida would be held more responsible. In other words, the sins of Chorazin and Bethsaida were greater than the sins of Tyre and Sidon. For they had received more revelation than Tyre and Sidon. And hence, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it would be for Chorazin and Bethsaida. None of these four cities had repented. But Bethsaida and Chorazin would be held more responsible because of their failure to repent. It was greater. You see than the sin of Tyre and Sidon. And the point here is that not every sin is equally heinous in the sight of God. But in spite of this we must remember that all sin. Whether great or small deserves God's wrath and curse. You see all four cities were going to receive God's wrath and curse. And this is true not only for these four cities, but for all who fail to repent. All who fail to turn to the Lord in faith and repentance. And this means that all of mankind, in the words of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, are sinners in the hands of an angry God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, when Adam broke the covenant of works and sinned against God, God descended in anger. He was angry. He is angry at sinners. I've shared with you before, but the translation that says that God came into the garden in the cool of the day. Well, this is a a faulty translation. After Adam sinned, God did not come down in the cool of the day. He came down in the spirit of the day. The word there is ruach, which can be translated as wind or breath or spirit. Some translators think, well, it's in the windy part of the day, so it must be the cool part of the day. That is not what the text is denoting. He has come, he came down in the spirit of the day, which in later scripture becomes known as the day of the Lord. He came down in the same fashion that Jesus will come down on the day of judgment. But the particular or the peculiar thing about the coming of the Lord at the garden was that he did not bring ultimate judgment upon man at that time. He brought a common curse, a common judgment, but he did not bring ultimate judgment. He did not bring his full wrath and curse, but rather he was pleased to make a new covenant with man. You see, God would sovereignly administer the covenant of grace. Now, God is always sovereign Over the covenants that he makes with man. He sets the terms and conditions. Man does not negotiate with God. On these matters. But also in every covenant. God requires something of man. In the covenant of works. He required perfect and personal obedience from Adam. In the covenant of grace. There are requirements as well. Answer 85 of the Catechism says, To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. What a marvelous blessing God has given man by administering this covenant of grace. God graciously gave to us his son who would keep the law in our place notice that phrase again in question 82 and in the answer which says that no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God but Jesus was no mere man he was the God man and he kept the law for us Adam, as our first representative, broke God's law and sent us all into that estate of sin and misery. But the Son of God, the God-man, as our second representative, kept God's law on our behalf. And those united to Him find themselves in an estate of grace. Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, but Christ fulfilled the covenant of works so that those who believe in Him and repent of their sins might receive eternal life by grace, by a covenant of grace. Now, you might wonder how God can make any requirements of anybody in a covenant that is defined by Grace, if God requires something, then wouldn't it still be a covenant of works? Is faith and repentance works that God requires of us? No, because in the covenant of grace, God promises to provide all that he requires. He gives his elect the Holy Spirit who works faith and repentance in them. Just as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 reads, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, picking up on this point, the chapter on God's covenant with man in the Westminster Confession says, Man, by his fall, Having made himself incapable of life by this covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now listen, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. And, listen, promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. You see, He requires faith and by extension, repentance. But He provides His people, His Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Understanding the requirement. In this manner is the only way to uphold the covenant of grace. And so then, by virtue of the covenant of grace, God has enabled man, specifically his elect, to leave the estate of sin and misery and to enter into this new estate, the estate of grace. And in this estate, man is still not able to perfectly keep God's commandments because of the remnant of sin that remains man will still fall short of the glory of God but he is able once again not to sin and this is different than the estate of sin and misery because those in that estate are not able not to sin Or we might say they are only able to sin. You may see an unbeliever do something good, but in the eyes of God, he only sins. He may do that which is outward good, but he cannot do inward or spiritual good. And that's why Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But for those of faith who have entered into the estate of grace, they are able to resist sin. Not perfectly in this life, but yet they are able to please God by the Spirit's enabling. Romans 8 speaks to the difference between those in the estate of sin and misery from those who are in the estate of grace. Paul speaks of them as those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. And beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You see, the spirit of God works faith and repentance in us so that we might submit to God's laws and produce faith in our lives pleasing our heavenly father Christ communicates or we might say administers all the benefits of the covenant of grace through our faith repentance and through the diligent use Of the outward means. And we'll look at all of these things in more detail over the next few weeks. But they are the instruments through which Christ administers the blessings of the covenant of grace. Beloved, we must turn from sin to Christ for salvation. As the federal head of the covenant of grace, he has kept the law for us. And he has borne the curse of the law for us as well. The very wrath of God. And for those who have turned from sin. Unto Christ in repentance and faith. The wrath of God has been satisfied. In the death of Christ. And so too has the righteous requirement. Of the law. As our covenant head. He has paid both the fine and the fee. He paid our penalty, that is, by dying for us. That is the fine. And He kept the righteous requirement of the law for us. That is the fee. There are only two covenants and two covenant heads you are either in Adam and remain in the covenant of works, or you are in Christ and have come into a covenant of grace. If you are in Adam and remain in sin and misery, you will receive God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the one to come. To simplify that a little bit, we might say that you will receive death both physically and spiritually. But if you are in Christ and in an estate of grace, then at your death you will be advanced to the final estate, the estate of glory. In that estate, you will only be able not to to sin. What a day that will be. A day when we will no longer need to repent of anything. And a day that our faith will turn to sight. May that day come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you will take your redeemed through all of those estates. Showing your glorious work of salvation in our lives. Lord, we know that we deserve your wrath and curse. But we thank you that you have shown grace and mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we live our lives ever dependent upon you. For our faith and repentance, but uh, dependent upon you in all things, knowing that you are mighty over all of creation and redemption. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. Help us to be utterly grateful for all that we have. May your spirit work within us those truths that we might live out the gospel in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.